1: We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine.
0: Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 293 and part two of our Pirates of the Caribbean storytelling series. Part one was episode number 291. There we talked a lot about the history and everything that led up to this attraction being built Today, we're going to focus more on the story. We're going to go scene by scene and break it down.
1: Yeah, so before we move on, we want to mention our travel agent sponsor for today's episode, Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. If you're looking to go to Disney, you need to head over to littlebitofdisney.com. There, you'll find a short form that you can fill out. You just need to tell Hannah what you want to do, when you're going, any of the details that you do know, and then she can get you hooked up and help you plan a great trip. Remember, you don't have to pay for any of her services. Disney does that. So this is for free. Your trip is going to be easier and better because of it, which makes it a win-win. So again, if you head over to littlebitofdisney.com and tell her Detour to Neverland sent you, or you can click the link in our show notes.
0: So our goal in all of this now is we're trying to get as many people to go to Disneyland as possible. So many of you are messaging us saying, you know, I'm learning so much more about Disneyland. I've got to go out there. I've got to see it. And we concur. That's exactly (laughs) what you need to do. So we're going to be keeping tabs with Hannah. How many of you are going to Disneyland? Because now I think everybody's got to do it. It's a rite of passage as a Disney fan.
1: I mean, we always joke about that. The first time we went, what did we call it? The pilgrimage? Correct. And we're going back for round two this month, which is super exciting. So yeah, I mean, it's a must do trip.
0: So let's do a quick recap of the part one of this series of Pirates of the Caribbean storytelling. If you remember, storytelling is all about trying to enhance your next ride on this attraction. So little details that we can point out, little things that we can do to help enhance it, to have you have a deeper appreciation for it or whatever it might be. I think we accomplished that in the first part on the history and just want to do a quick recap of that.
1: Yeah, so the time frame for this attraction really from the idea to its completion, it took place in the 50s and the 60s. And something that we looked at a lot with as far as the history was that this was a very busy time for WED and just Walt Disney personally. A lot of attractions were being worked on. So we have Haunted Mansion, Tiki Room, Country Bears, all of which we've talked about. You had the World's Fair that was going on, and then we know that Walt was also pretty sick at this time. So all of these things were just kind of compounding, and that meant that Pirates of the Caribbean took a backseat for a little while, which was a good thing. Um, This was an attraction that Walt was super excited about, and a lot of notable engineers worked on this project. So mostly... You know, we love to talk about Mark Davis, also Claude Coates. He's a great one. And they work together very well. So the last thing and kind of where we left off, and this is where we're going to pick back up, is that this attraction switched from being a walk-through wax museum to a boat ride, which was going to help move more people through. It doubled the size of the show building, and it gave a different perspective and a different Life to this ride, don't you think?
0: I do think so. And I think it leads into something that we've talked about in previous attractions, maybe not explicitly, but I would like us to start talking about it going forward about what is the ask that they are asking for you of the guest in order to prepare yourself for the story. So, for example, the ask for Slinky Dog Dash is to believe that you are a toy, that you're in Andy's backyard. Yada, yada, yada. The ask for Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run is that you're on Batu and you're going in and doing a job for Hondo Inaka. The ask for this one, I think, is a little bit bigger of a leap where they ask you to make it in your mind a lot more than they physically do in some other attractions, where they're basically, you're in New Orleans Square. The time frame that that sets... You know, who really knows? Probably 1700s, 1800s, maybe 1900s, if I'm being honest. I don't know.
1: I think definitely seventeen and 1800s.
0: Okay, and so you're going into this attraction, you're going through the swamp, and then you're going into basically see how the pirates are living and how they are attacking this city. I don't well, know if attacking is the right word.
1: In a way, and we're going to get to that in a second when we focus more on the story, but you think that's too much of an ask or a, a bigger ask?
0: I just think it's a different type of ask. I think a good way of, in my mind that I'm thinking about it is that they hold your hand a lot further along in a lot of other attractions. They kind of walk you into it, and there's really nowhere where you can jump off ship. I think with pirates, there's a little more leeway where you could be like, okay, what exactly is happening now? Probably 95% of people get it and they accept that ask and they are right there in the setting of where the Imagineers want you. You know, there's, I don't know. Now that I'm saying it out loud, Slinky Dog Dash probably has more people not make it to that point in their head that the Imagineers wanted you to than Pirate's. But I just think it's interesting to think about for these attractions of what are they asking of you as the guest in order to prepare yourself to fully be immersed in the story?
1: Well, and I do think if we look at the story and we kind of jump into that, it is a little bit unsuspecting. Obviously, you know, getting into a queue for any attraction, you have maybe a vague idea of what you're getting yourself into just based off of the title, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know there are going to be pirates there. But because this is set in New Orleans, New Orleans Square, and especially once you go inside, you are in the swamps, you're in the bayou of Louisiana, you don't quite understand what's going on. And I'll say from my own perspective, writing this for the first time, obviously it was weird just because it's, Quite different than what we have at Walt Disney World, which we'll talk about later. But it is it's a different perspective because they really are trying to transport you from one place to the next.
0: Well, and it does that by you setting, I think, is their way of saying, "Okay, you're in New Orleans now with this drop, you are no longer there. You're
1: you're jumping ahead, Brendan.
0: Well, just throwing it out there.
1: But it is true. So it's a slow start. I think it's building that anticipation since you are expecting pirates. And initially, there are no pirates to be seen. You don't get the music. You You just hear a lot of the background noise. You get the banjo, the guy on his porch. It's a little odd. It's a little eerie, if you ask me.
0: It is eerie.
1: And then from there, you do have to think about the history a little bit. So we did talk about last week that Mark Davis, when he was first approached about pirates, he was excited. And, of course, he looked at illustrations, but he also did his research. And we had to do some research as well because we started to rack our brains. Well, how do pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean, whatever you want to say, how does that relate to Louisiana, into New Orleans, into the swamp. So we learned that in order to pay a war debt, France actually had to give up control of Louisiana to Spain from 1763 to 1803, which is important because we are going to be in a Spanish town, basically. So that's, again, where it might be a a bit of an ask.
0: Which I never would have thought that. I mean, you think New Orleans, you think French, French Creole, you know, Cajun culture, all directs back towards France. And there's this short little time in history, 40 years, that the Spanish had set up shop there. And I think it's an interesting choice to kind of make it during that time period. And, you know, it may linger a little bit over now. They might still have a fortress set up when they're not officially controlling the city, but it's got to be around this same time frame.
1: Precisely. And that's why I kind of said this is why I think this is the time period that they're working with the late 1700s, early 1800s, simply because historically it would make sense. So then, like you were saying, this is where you start to make that transition from the bayou, to your first big pirate scene. And this was, again, very intentional. Something that the Imagineers, and specifically that Mark wanted, was almost this grand reveal. They wanted you to feel transported, a little confused. You didn't really know where you were or how you got there. And if you think about the ride, Pirates is a pretty dark ride if you compare it to a lot of others. There's a lot of effects, and that transition, Mark Davis even described it as being magical. They wanted to kind of take your breath away. It's mysterious. You don't really know what's going on. There's lots of caves. And this is where you also hear the words "Dead Men Tell no tales," which we love.
0: I just think it's it's a classic. It's you know. iconic. And I never would have suspected that it had its origination on this ride. I thought it was something maybe from an old Pirates movie or some from some other part of culture. I never would have suspected that this is where it came from.
1: So you drop down, everything narrows, and then all of a sudden, after you make this drop, which they thought was funny because people didn't expect it, and it is kind of scary, the room opens up, and this is where it's being revealed that these pirates are bombing the fort. So there's the massive ship. There's this battle. And I'm not going to lie. This has always kind of escaped me. I guess I didn't realize. Did you realize that the pirates were bombing the city?
0: Uh, I mean, I guess loosely, I just kind of thought that they were having more fun than it being more, <laughs> more of a battle.
1: Well, but it's not even a battle. I guess that's what I had always thought, too. I had thought that there was, because it's forced perspective, I always thought that maybe there was another pirate ship behind us and they were battling back and forth. In this scenario, that is definitely not the case. It is just you have the pirate ship and you have the cannonballs and everything that's happening because this is them coming into the city and taking over.
0: Which is sort of a happy medium from what we talked about in last episode, where Mark did learn that pirates really didn't battle much at sea. A lot of their battles did take place on land. So you get the iconic pirate ship scene, which they've changed now. Recently, we're going to talk about changes in the future in, in uh, later in the episode, but. Even just the construction of that room, making it tall enough to put that pirate ship in there was a huge deal for them. That mm-hmm. it was something that they really wanted. They knew if you're going to have pirates, you got to have a pirate ship. And to do it right, they had to make that show building way bigger than they ever expected to.
1: And again, this is truly the beginning of this pirate story where the original concept for the even the walkthrough was that it was showing these different pirates, the, I guess, like the dirty deeds, the bad things they did, the sacking of the city. That was always the original intent. So we're actually starting to see that come to life. So they did not stray from their original idea. So from there, you are outside. It's a foggy night. The pirates are attacking the Spaniards, which I just, I think that's cool because it's historically accurate. Who would have thought Disney?
0: How do you know they're Spaniards?
1: Because it said so. Because <laughs> <laughs> Mark know. told us they're Spaniards.
0: Uh, okay. I just didn't know if they were, what they were.
1: We're going with it. Okay. This is the time period. I am hook, line, and sinker. I'm a believer. Okay. These are the Spaniards that these pirates are attacking. And now we are in their town, and they are causing chaos. And I think this is kind of funny because this is where we also got, get to see Mark's personality. Because he's known for his gags. And even though these pirates are doing bad things, they're also lovable and funny. What does that sound like? Haunted Mansion. Exactly. I was hoping you... I knew you would, but in the back of my mind, I was hoping that you would still get it. Well, and it's an important
0: time to note, too, is that this ride, you can see the touches of... It's basically the same team that worked on this and Haunted Mansion. It's Yale Gracie, it's Claude Coates, it's Blaine Gibson, it's Mark Davis, it's Alice Davis.
1: It's Atencio.
0: It's Leota Toombs. Like, they're all the same people, and they... You can see that, and I think it's just fantastic that they're so, they're very, very different attractions, but you can see kind of their personalities come through through these scenes.
1: And so basically what we mentioned before is we're going to go through each of these scenes, and again, back to the original concept, when it was just a wax museum, there was going to be kind of an individual pirate telling about himself or the things that he did and the scene would unfold around them. It's similar here where in each scene, they did put something to draw your attention, you know, to one place in particular and the scene is unfolding around it.
0: Which is interesting. Even in the set design, you can kind of tell that where it opens up on one side and the other side will narrow in on you to basically force you to look a particular way. They don't have the same luxury that they had in Haunted Mansion where they can turn you and make you look a specific way. They really have to think about where your eyes are going to be drawn.
1: Mm -hmm. So the well scene is first, and this is where you see Carlos. He's being dunked into the water. They're bringing him up and down, and basically they're doing this because he knows where the treasure is. So the pirates are sacking the city. They want the loot. They want the goods. And Carlos knows where they are.
0: This is my favorite scene. Is it really? Yes, I love Carlos. <laughs> well, I love his wife more. Don't be cheeky, Carlos. <laughs> I love it.
1: That was a pretty good impression. Something funny about Carlos that you might appreciate is that Mark loved people watching. And Carlos's face is based off of just a random guy that he saw in a restaurant. He just loved the shape of his face and decided that this would be perfect.
0: Carlos does have a fun face.
1: He has a fun face. And I can only imagine Alice sitting with him at the restaurant being super annoyed that he was just staring at random people. But that's besides the point. Now we have Carlos to live on forever.
0: Which, God bless them.
1: Wouldn't that be crazy if you went to Disneyland and saw yourself in an animatronic?
0: I mean... There's more later that we're going to talk about. I mean, this is almost a staple of Mark Davis is that he pulls them from people that he knows.
1: Like the bears. I
0: know. I was about to say that we couldn't confirm it in the country bear episode, but Big Al is 100% based off a real person.
1: I still don't know if we can confirm that. That's besides the point. He loves doing this. We love finding these little things. So next time you look at Carlos... Remember, he was a random guy in a restaurant. That's how someone can remember you. I bet his name
0: was Bill. Bill. He
1: he looks like a Carlos to me, but that's okay. So then the next scene, another iconic, is the auctioneer. And a few things to note about the auctioneer is that this was a scene that was added in later by Walt himself. The auctioneer animatronic was extremely sophisticated. I think this is maybe an example of they got super excited and they wanted to show off what they could do. And at the time, we know that Abraham Lincoln was the best animatronic that they had with all his different movements and he was very lifelike. They outdid Abraham Lincoln with the auctioneer. And it turns out they ended up knowing that this was super unnecessary, kind of silly. They couldn't really go back and change it. And they recognized that when they started doing different testing, that even though he was so detailed, A, you weren't really close enough to notice it. But B, when you're in a boat, you go by so quickly that you don't get to catch all of those little details. Ultimately, when they brought this up to Walt, I don't know if they expected him to be mad or I don't know. I don't know why they brought it up. Maybe just, they felt like they needed to, But Walt said, you know, we get so much repeat business here. That means that each time we come down, we'll see something that we haven't seen before. And I like that viewpoint.
0: I do. And I think for all of us who are kind of learning how to be storytellers in our own lives, and there's a really interesting principle here that they discovered about that sometimes less is more. Like they were overdoing it for no reason. That, you know, if you think about great moments with Mr. Lincoln, your face on with him, you can see every single twitch that he makes. You can see his fingers move. You can see his mouth move, his facial expressions, his eyes, and everything like that. There's so much to look at in the auctioneer scene, which now we don't have. It's different. But the same principle applies where it's really only a couple of movements make it look very lifelike. You really don't have to do... More than that, because the boats are moving, like you said. You're viewing it in passing. Your eyes probably only stick on the action actioneer for two to three seconds at most before you're looking around because there's other people talking. You're wanting to see the other scenes. So I think it's, uh, it's an interesting principle that I think you can still see them use today in
1: storytelling. Yeah. And I also just love the idea that Walt wasn't mad or disappointed that maybe they spent too much time on this one thing, but instead he just kind of took it as an opportunity to say, you know, this gives more people to look at. It enhances the experience next time because hopefully, or most likely people aren't just going to ride this once or experience this once. They're going to come back and do it again. And this kind of gives that opportunity to make it maybe just a little bit different.
0: So, Let's talk about how they changed it since then, since this is the most notable change besides the addition of Captain Jack Sparrow. But even at the time, and we mentioned this in part one, there was even discussions internally within WED of does the auctioneer scene really fit what we're trying to do? The the quote was, is this very Disney? Or will this be all right? Will the audience be able to understand what we're trying to convey here. And I think it really accomplishes a lot of what they were trying to do that show that pirates are not nice people. Like they're scoundrels, they're dirty, they're vile, they're nasty. (laughs) But we learned over time it's not necessarily something that needs to be depicted in this setting. So I think it's... You know, they, they bring Red to the forefront. She becomes an auctioneer herself, where they are auctioning off rum. And so I think it still accomplishes what we're trying to do in the attraction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, again, I don't know their exact original intent. I mean, I definitely think as everything is unfolding, things do kind of get progressively worse. And I do think that this would fall into the category of worse. <laughs> I mean, that that's pretty bad to auction people off, obviously. But it is showing I don't know, that they are they're stealing and then they're trying to make money off of what they stole. You know, I don't know. So they're bad people.
0: Which now I think you can see the flip side is that red in the tone of her voice and you know, maybe the movies are going to enhance this as well. She's almost taking advantage of their greed and their stupidity, it seems like. It's kind of the impression that I get whenever you hear her dialogue.
1: Well, you do kind of see it throughout the attraction that these pirates are not uh, forward thinkers. So good for her if that's what she's doing.
0: A couple other notes to mention about the auctioneer before we move on. It was significant. He was voiced by Paul Frees, who is also the voice of the ghost host in Haunted Mansion. So basically, everybody who worked over there, they did double duty.
1: I mean, they did. And that's kind of what we talked about in part one, where everyone was working on multiple projects. I mean, it's the same time period, the same probably excitement to do this attraction. I'm sure everyone wanted in. So it makes sense. I support it.
0: So the next scene that they take you through after that is kind of a chaotic scene where your eyes are brought to the woman with a broom chase scene. And this is really where they wanted you to look here because they worked long on getting that to go round and round and getting the effect that they really wanted to happen. And I don't know, I think it's done very well.
1: Well, and again, things are kind of amping up here. So you're starting to see that they are stealing things. They're looting. They're still looking for that buried treasure because I do think that that is kind of the overall goal here because we see that at the end that they obviously miss the treasure. But it's leading into, I think this is the most iconic scene.
0: Before we move on to your most iconic scene, I don't know why. I didn't realize until now. I always thought that that was a husband and wife in the chase scene.
1: You didn't know that it was a pirate?
0: Well, I mean, I did, but I thought maybe the pirate had a land wife. I didn't realize that he was like breaking into her home, breaking and entering.
1: (laughs) And she was trying to chase them away.
0: Yeah, makes a lot more sense now.
1: It does, doesn't it? Okay, so back to my most iconic scene, The Burning Town.
0: Oh, I thought we were going to talk about Carlos more.
1: No, Carlos, we're past him. Our boat has continued to move on. The effects here were created by Yale Gracie. So again, to me, I think the coolest thing about Yale Gracie, obviously he's very great at illusions and effects. Uh, They thought that the fire was so realistic that the fire department said, you need like an immediate stop because if there were to be a real fire in here, people would not realize it. They wouldn't know that they need to leave because they would think that it's just part of the attraction. So whatever he did, he did it very well because the fire department was even worried. But my favorite thing about him is his Haunted Mansion tribute to Master Gracie. We're just going to keep talking about Haunted Mansion.
0: It all leads back to Haunted Mansion.
1: It does. A few iconic pirates here, so one that I like a lot is the pirate who is looting and he's trying to escape. He's got one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat. He's got the pile of hats on top of his head, so it's super obvious what he's doing. He's not smart enough to try to conceal it at all, and he's visibly struggling. So it's comical because it's like, what is this? A, what is this guy going to do with all those hats? B, he's going to fall into the water This is not going well.
0: Well, and this use of comedy throughout, I think, makes this attraction much more approachable than it could have been. You know, if it was the Wax Museum, and each of them were telling about their, you know, vile deeds and worst things they've ever done, I'm sure they would have added some sort of comedic relief in there. But this scene is like almost every single one. Either you have the guy laying with the pigs, or his stinky foot hanging over the edge or the donkey singing the song like there's comedic relief throughout that takes the pressure off of just how bad these pirates are
1: well and it also shows i think this scene in particular kind of what we mentioned a minute ago but they are not bright their goal was to come into the town look for the treasure steal some things and they were so dumb they burnt the whole thing down so now there's going to be nothing for them to steal anymore because there's not going to be anything there. So I do think you get to see a good holistic view of these pirates. I don't know if it's a great light that they're being put in, but you do get to see their personalities. And again, I think that's very intentional. Very true. So do you want to hear a fun fact about this room? I'd love to. So the fun fact here is about two to three months after the attraction opened, there was an actual fire in the burning town scene. And they described it to be just terrible. Not from like a guest standpoint. No one was hurt. It was fine in that way. But the animatronics were burned. They, you know, all that was left on some of them were just like their eyes, which I can imagine is super creepy. And they were panicking, basically. They thought they were going to have to close the ride down for several weeks. It was still a brand-new attraction, so I'm sure it was bringing in a lot of people, and a lot of guests would be super bummed to not get to ride it. So they're running around. They're panicking, and they go to Alice Davis, who is Mark's wife, who worked on – we talked about her before with Small World. Now she was tasked with making the costumes for Pirates of the Caribbean – and they asked her, like, what are we going to do? How long is it going to take you to make these costumes? And at first she starts saying, like, oh, it's going to take, you know, weeks. They're just like, weeks? Oh, my gosh. Like, what are we going to do? And she's like, but luckily here in this cabinet that I've hidden from all of you, I made a spare. And it turns out that when they started making the costumes and doing you know, whatever for this attraction. They told her, don't. They specifically told her, do not make two. Because she was very forward thinking, just like she was for a small world where she was like, well, what are we going to do if something happens to these costumes? And they basically told her, we'll worry about it when we get to it. Well, they got to it and she was able to just pull out the costumes. She had patterns and everything saved also. So, she could probably start making more in the future. And they were able to open the ride within 24 hours.
0: What a genius.
1: She's a smart woman. Basically, what she did was she told them, they said, you know, how much money do you need for your budget? And she doubled it. And they didn't even question her <laughs> so that she could make two.
0: Well, and you also have to remember that she, when she first came into the Walt Disney Company, she came in as like, like that, like a consultant or an independent contractor before Walt hired her full time for Small World. So she kind of had that mindset of running her own stuff and out, and she was an outsourced resource from Disney before they brought her in.
1: Mm-hmm. So she's a smart woman. She, I like Alice. Big fan. So, last but not least, you are brought into the dungeon scene, and this is where. You know, the city is burning down. Everything is chaos, I guess. And you have the dog and the prisoners. So you have the three prisoners who are trying to lure the dog over. And the best part about this scene is that the middle guy, his name was Big John. And Big John was actually the janitor that they had at WED. And it's funny because he was not big at all. I guess he was a very small man. Um, But he was loved by everyone, and this was a special tribute to him, basically, so that he could live on in pirate form. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he's the pirate who's whistling for the dog. He has the rope in his hand, and he's on his knees. And, again, it's just a good example of this is humorous in an attraction that could be quite dark if they wanted it to be.
0: So debate time. This scene, the burning scene, or the auction scene, which is the most iconic?
1: I mean, I already said, I think it's the burning scene. Because to me, that's, like, everything is building up to that scene. That's kind of the, if we are talking about a movie, you know, that's like the climactic point where this is the action.
0: I think it's the dungeon scene.
1: You think that's the most iconic? I do. Why do you say that?
0: I think it's just been the most like replicated in pop culture and the most um recognizable that you could show anybody, you know, here's three guys trying to lure a dog to get the keys. Where is that from? Oh, that's Pirates of the Caribbean.
1: That's fair. I that might be the most recognizable scene. I'll give you that.
0: Okay. So we got to talk about music as well, which is a vital and part of this attraction written by our guy, X Atencio. We need to do, here's a future episode idea, a challenge of who wrote the most iconic Disney Park songs, the Sherman Brothers or X Atencio. And we'll have to determine that at a later date. You can give me your your gut feeling right now, but...
1: That's a hard one, though. I mean, I guess specifically parks, I might say *Exotencio*. But once you start getting into movies, you got the Sherman Brothers, Howard Ashman comes to mind. I mean, you've got some good ones to choose from. That's a tough one.
0: That is very true. So I'll ask you a different question today. This is not a future episode.
1: Okay. So right, right now, now,
0: how does this stack up to other parks ride soundtracks? But looking at Grim Grinning Ghost, or It's a Small World After All, or The Tiki Room, or zippity doo where does Yoho, A Pirate's Life, for me, stack up in your mind?
1: And this is definitely one that's going to get stuck in your head.
0: More if, than Small World?
1: Well, <laughs> Small World is always at the top of that list. I do think I might prefer Grim Grinning Ghost. Just because I like how that one plays throughout the entire ride, we did learn that for this one, and we had to really think about it, we even watched a ride through, you don't get to hear Yoho Pirate's Life for Me the whole time. And again, I think that is intentional because you hear it first when you're introduced to the pirates, which makes me think of Haunted Mansion where we don't see the ghosts until they materialize. So I feel like it helps with the story, which I appreciate more than anything. But as far as like dance ability, you're like, you know, <laughs> what's going to make me feel fun? I don't know. I think Tiki Room is at the top of the list. I think that song, I just love it.
0: And you haven't mentioned zippity doo yet.
1: So. I haven't mentioned zippity Doodah yet. That's a good one, but I feel like some of these others are better. So I feel like to me... Yoho, Pirates Life for me is like mid. It's a- it's average. Oh goodness! <laughs> I know that sounds so harsh. What do you think?
0: Well, I think I take points away from Zippity Doodah just because it's not the only song on Splash Mountain. Okay. Because they're playing Laughing Place and other songs throughout. A lot of these others, like it's the focal song of the attraction. I probably give the edge to Grim, Green and Ghost as well, just because continuous loop, start to end, never stops. I mean, I guess you can say that for Small World, too. I don't know.
1: But that one, I feel like, even though it's an iconic song, it doesn't help set the tone for the attraction. Like, that's what Grim, Green and Ghost does so well, is the tempo... And the speed changes based on which room you're in to evoke a different feeling. Small world, I mean, the whole thing is just happy. So that's all you get the whole time. And I think that's why it sticks in your head so much is because you just listen to it constantly. But with pirates, it starts when you are introduced to the pirates. And with Grim and Ghosts, I feel like it helps with emotion.
0: Okay, we're never going to settle this.
1: Well, we never will, but that's okay.
0: So let's wrap this up with just some of our final thoughts. We do need to talk about after the dungeon scene. That is where another addition took place to get the third Captain Jack Sparrow. We'll talk about that probably more in part three, but you you finish the dungeon scene, then you look back to the left before you... Well, I was going to say before you disembark, but then I'm thinking of the Magic Kingdom version before you go up the ramp in Mm -hmm. Disneyland is when you see it. And I'm curious if anybody else thinks this, and maybe it's better in Disneyland. Magic Kingdom version, I feel like you can't hear a single word that he's saying. I don't know if I have bad hearing, but like...
1: Well, I don't want to focus on Jack too much right now because I feel like he's not what's important. It's more so just that you realize that all along... The treasure was right there, and these pirates were too—I don't know—greedy uh, in other ways to get to the treasure.
0: Well, I know you said you don't want to focus on Jack, but do you think that <laughs> that do you think that's appropriate that Jack's the one that figures it out?
1: I mean, he is the best of all the pirates. He's kind of the most clever. The others in are a weird kind of way. in a weird way, but. I mean, even in the movies, he's portrayed as being kind of... Eccentric. Yeah. I mean, obviously eccentric. They're like the best. The others are kind of dull. And then here you got Captain Jack.
0: So why don't you share your final thoughts about the scenes and how this was constructed? And then we'll wrap this one up.
1: So something that really stood out to me, and we do mention this as we talk about our storytelling series, just what the story is, what they want you to feel. And Mark Davis had a quote um, where he said, if you want a story, do a film. That was his, and by his he means Walt's, attitude. And so we're giving you a series of experiences. And that's what these things are really about. This is a series of experiences involving pirates. So what's interesting to me there is that with each room and with each scene, that you encounter throughout this attraction, they do want you to feel like you are part of it. Like you are experiencing what it would be like to kind of go on this, I don't know if adventure is the right word, but to be in this space with these pirates at this particular time in history, whether it's completely historical or not is besides the point. But they do want you to be immersed. And I think they do a good job of that. It's interesting to me that when they talk about a story, you do a film. I think what's so great about Pirates of the Caribbean as an attraction is that the attraction came first. And even though they were trying to give you an experience, the story and the fact that they're still able to tell a cohesive story was so strong that they then made... A movie franchise about it.
0: I mean, talk about foreshadowing. 40 years. Yeah. Pretty impressive. And I think there's something to be said for that Pirates and Haunted Mansion have stood the test of time so well. You can say Jungle Cruise to a certain extent as well. They've stood the test of time so well because they're not constrained by a very rigid story. Mm -hmm. That, Like you said, they're based on these experiences, these scenes, and there's a lot of lateral movement for your mind to create your own story or to interpret things differently or to write it 10 times in a row and pick up on different things throughout. Whereas when you think about when they do a Peter Pan's flight, for example, it's a retelling. It's a very rigid story that they have to hit the plot points in order for you to leave satisfied pirates it's loose loosey goosey <laughs> it's fun it's there's a lot of you know imagination that can be inserted there which i think is what they eventually ended up doing with the movies
1: well yeah i mean there's even a lot of emotion there too we talked about there's humor there is a little bit of fear because you know you're watching all of these things unfold you're watching this town burn um I don't necessarily think there's any I'm trying to think of other emotions like sadness
0: well like something along the lines of curiosity and
1: yeah but there's you know there's just like a lot to unpack and kind of like you said you could ride this attraction a lot of different times and just seek out those different things. And I feel like you would get a different experience every single time.
0: Well, and I think this is a staple of WED and of Mark Davis and Claude Coates and Yale Gracie and all these people who, but Mark Davis is primarily responsible for the character development and for the sketching of the scenes and so on and so forth. So I know we just seem like a Mark Davis podcast, but we kind if of are. the boot
1: fits, yeah.
0: But, I think that's another interesting thing that you can do is each character has their own story. They have their own costumes. Thanks to Alice Davis. They have their own movements. They have their own placement of where they are. And I think that really, really enhances the story so much.
1: Well, and you just mentioned, you know, how all of these different characters could have their own elaborate backstory I do think that's what we're about to see with red. I think it just goes to show again that they're still not done telling the story of the Pirates of the Caribbean. And there is still so much more that they can do here. So we have a lot more to talk about. It seems like.
0: Which we will do many of those in part three of this series. The final part. We're cutting ourselves off at three.
1: We will. So for three, what we're thinking is we're going to talk about some of the different changes that have taken place. Of course, how this plays into the movie franchise, but then also the variances. Is it bad that I'm thinking about Loki right now that take place in the different parks? So how has the ride changed with each new location?
0: So we hope you can join us for that. We have a lot of other big things going on this week if you're listening On release day, we just did a live show last night. If you're listening on release day, you can listen to the audio of that right now if you missed the live show or go watch it on YouTube. We also had two vlogs drop this week, so one from our National Parks trip and one from Avenger Station in Las Vegas. And then lastly, we're doing the fireworks, so follow us on Instagram and TikTok as we are soaking in all of the fireworks as they return at the end of this week. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, please leave us an iTunes review. It's absolutely the best thing to help us out and to help the channel grow. And if all of this talk about Pirates of the Caribbean makes you think that you need to ride that original version.
1: Which you probably do. The
0: creme de la creme of Pirates of the Caribbean versions reach out to our friend Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations, littlebitofdisney.com, fill out that free quote, or look in the show notes and click the link there. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will chat with you on Monday.
1: Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show.
0: Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit detourtoneverland.com.
1: We appreciate you letting us be part of your day.
0: See you real soon.